Okay. If you were here last week, which not everyone was, and that doesn't matter, if you were here last week, you may have spotted a problem. To recap, we spent quite a lot of time discussing how God is uncreated and self-existent, and how he is all-sufficient for himself and for us. He has all the resources in himself to be endlessly generous to his creatures without needing anything back from us. So we spent a lot of time using the word generous last week. That's, if, if that's the one thing you remember, remember that God is generous. Um, but because God is uncreated and self-existent, that places him in a totally different category or order of existence to us and everything else. You may remember we imagined a blackboard with a big line drawn down the middle in white chalk. And on this side of the line, well, you have two types of existence, one on each side of the line. On this side is the created stuff. On this side is the uncreated stuff. God is the only thing on that side of the line, on the uncreated side of the line. Everything else, even stuff like dark matter, which we don't fully understand, and I certainly don't fully understand, is on the created side of existence. Which means that God exists in a totally different way to us. So, here's the problem. How can we talk about what God is like with any confidence when he's so utterly unlike us? That's what we're going to explore this evening, how God is beyond our ability to know in one sense, and yet how he has bridged the chasm to make himself wonderfully known. And my hope is that we will be amazed and thankful and humbled. We're going to begin by asking how we come to know things in the first place, then we'll look at how God overcomes our limitations to make himself known, and finally, we'll think about how God alone has the right to define himself and all of the implications that flow from that. So firstly, how do we come to know anything at all? Well, we only have direct knowledge of things that we can see or touch or taste or smell or hear. We rely on our senses to have direct knowledge of things. I know what a Mars bar is, or at least I did before I was diagnosed with various intolerances, because I, I have seen one, I've read the ingredients list on the back, I've opened it, I've felt the wrapper sort of rustling, I've felt the chocolate melt on my fingers and on my tongue, I've smelt the lovely chocolatey smell, and I've tasted its sweetness. So I know what a Mars bar is like, because I have sensed it. And we gain direct knowledge of things through our senses. We can also have indirect knowledge of things that we can't see or haven't yet seen when we observe their effects on the world around us. Or, particularly if you're Charlie Curry, when we hypothesise about them mathematically. So Isaac Newton allegedly started to suspect gravity existed because he felt the apple fall on his head. He couldn't see gravity, but he felt its effects. And I'm told that physicists think there is something else needed 
to explain the formation and then the movement of certain galaxies in addition to gravity, something called dark matter, because it seems mathematically unlikely or impossible that these galaxies would hold together in their current form and the planets would revolve in their current pattern if the only thing there to create a gravitational pull was visible matter. So scientists hypothesize there must be something else. They call it uh, dark matter. We can't see it, but we gain indirect knowledge of things like that through what we observe with our senses, through their effects on the visible world. Knowledge always starts with our senses. That's our sort of underlying point, because our senses are the primary way we interact with the world around us. We can even begin to know something about God through our senses. As we, as we feel and experience the creation around us, we start asking questions like, how did it get here? How could something come from nothing, or order from chaos, or complexity from simplicity? And why are the conditions on, life, on, on Earth so perfect for life anyway? And why is there so much beauty in the universe? And we begin to realise that something greater stands behind creation because of what we can see. Romans 1, verses 19 to 21, even say that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made since the, since the creation of the world. And Paul goes on to say that that ought to be enough to lead us to glorify and thank him. So we can know something of God by our senses as we observe his handiwork in the created order. But, here's the big but, God is not part of that created order. As the uncreated one, he isn't solid or liquid or gas or plasma or dark matter or any other such thing. So we have no direct frame of reference for knowing God as he is in himself. As Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. That's why in Deuteronomy 4, verses 12 to 19, he stresses to Israel that they saw no visible form when he came down on Mount Sinai, which is partly why he's so against idolatry. Nothing in creation is sufficiently godlike to represent him fully or receive worship on his behalf. Not even human beings, even though we are his image bearers. We do not compare with the fullness of what God is like. But then how can we know anything more than just these glimpses of his eternal power and his divine nature in creation? And how can we know what he is like in himself? How can we know his, his character and his qualities? And how can we know him with any certainty? How do we avoid getting lost in the wildly divergent guesses that different religions and philosophies have cooked up over the last however many thousand years? 
I'd suggest it is only by way of analogy with created things. This is our second point now. God overcomes our limitations by using analogies to make himself known. An analogy, to be clear, is where you describe one thing in terms of another, but the comparison is not exact. It's like describing the taste of coffee through comparison with dark chocolate or nuts or citrus fruits. The drink in your hand isn't actually made of chocolate or nuts or citrus fruits. It's coffee. There isn't a one-to-one correspondence between the things that we're comparing. But the analogy or the comparison is still useful because it captures something of what coffee is like using familiar language, using things we can all relate to because most people have tasted chocolate or nuts or citrus fruit. So the analogy doesn't provide an exhaustive definition of what coffee is in itself. But unless the person writing the tasting notes has a very unusual palate, the analogy is still helpful. You can still read the description on your packet that you pick up in the supermarket and have some confidence whether you will like the brand or not. And in a similar way, God describes himself using analogies so that our finite minds can know something true and adequate of what he is like. So although God is not human, he still uses human language and he still uses imagery drawn from creation to describe himself and his actions. He gives us something familiar to latch onto in our understanding. And we can even say that he designed creation deliberately to provide us with a wealth of analogies to understand him by, so that we could better know him and enjoy him. He's done it on purpose. It's no accident that things like human beings or parenthood or marriage point to something of what God is like and how he loves his people. Let's work through some of those examples. We'll start with human body parts. The Bible frequently describes how the cry of God's people reached his ears, or the smell of their sacrifices was a pleasing aroma in his nostrils, or how he saves with his powerful right arm. It's not that he actually has ears or nostrils or arms, apart from the incarnation, which we'll come to later. But these descriptions give us helpful pictures that show how God interacts with his creation in a real and meaningful way. It's the same with the doctrine of the Trinity, or the the reality of the Trinity. God can truthfully describe himself as Father. But he is not a Father in the same way that I am a Father. Once I was not a Father because I had not procreated my daughter Clara. But when she was conceived, I became a father. God is a father too, because he has given existence to a son. But God gave existence to his son eternally, without beginning. So God has always been a father. It is an unchanging part of his identity. 
Before Jesus took on human nature in Mary's womb, he existed eternally as the divine son or word of the Father. We know that from John chapter 1, verse 1, where the word of God was with God in the beginning. We know it from John 1, verse 3, which says that all things were made through him, the word, meaning that the son himself was not made. He is on the uncreated side of our blackboard, if you like. And we see in John 5, verse 26, that the Son has life in himself, just as the Father has life in himself. He doesn't depend on anyone else to to have life, to be who he is. He's self-existent, like the Father. But, because he's the Son, he received that right to self-existence, if you like, from the Father. That's why Jesus says the Father granted him to have life in himself. And so the divine nature proceeds from the Father to the Son in a timeless, eternal act. That's what makes Jesus a Son. That's what makes the Father a Father. But they are not Son and Father in quite the same way that we are or can become sons or fathers. But God has made fatherhood and motherhood in creation to illustrate something of his own parenthood and the way that he gives life to another. We see this in Ephesians 3 verse 14, which says every family or paternity takes its name, its very concept, from God. So he's given us Parenthood in creation, to understand a little bit of how he, the Trinity, works and relates. Similarly, we see in Ephesians 5.32, he's made marriage as an analogy to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. And we could go on, we could list all sorts of things in creation that God can pick up on and use to describe himself. He can compare himself or the way he acts with a whole host of things that he has made. And he's done that deliberately so that we can know something of him. We can't know him exactly as he is in himself because he's a totally different order of existence. We can't know him exhaustively because he's infinite and eternal and we are not. But we can know him truly and adequately in a way that is perfectly suited to our own abilities and limitations. Even human language is a gift from God that enables us to better know him. So just as creation is a theatre for God's glory, which we learnt last week, not a factory for his glory, it doesn't add anything to him, but a theatre which displays and reveals his glory. So creation is a theatre for his self-revelation and it provides all of the material needed for him to reveal himself to us. And this calls for wonder because God has generously made us to enjoy the dazzling riches of his beauty and goodness. But it also calls for real humility. God is the only one who knows himself 
in a direct and exhaustive way. So he's the only one qualified to choose the analogies that describe him rightly. And that's our third and final point. Only God has the right to define himself. Only God has the right to define himself. God says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now in that passage he's talking primarily about his capacity to forgive instead of holding grudges. He is particularly unlike us in his graciousness. But the point holds generally. All God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Because God's own being is higher than ours. So this means we can't take any old created thing and say, oh, God must be like this. For example, we are not free to take human love and say, Love is an emotion that we can't really control. It ebbs and flows in us. It's a need in us, which makes us dependent on other people. So God's love must be the same. His love must ebb and flow, depending on how we act towards him. He must need us in order to be love, otherwise he's got no one to love. And perhaps he feels unfulfilled and lonely without our love in return. But we mustn't do that. (laughs) That way lies folly and all kinds of delusions which utterly contradict God's self-revelation in the Bible. As we've already seen, God is not dependent on anyone or anything to be who he is. He can love just fine without creation. Why? Well, Firstly, I think because God is the only being in all existence who is absolutely right to love himself. Because his own nature is pure, maximal goodness. It is beautiful in every way. It is not vanity for God to love himself. It would be madness if he didn't. But what is more... That love has always been expressed in a Trinitarian way. As the Father loves the exact imprint of his nature in the Son, through the Spirit. So his love is rightly self-centred, and yet wonderfully other-centred, if you like. Not that the Son is a different God, but our words can only get us so far in describing the inner life of God. It's also madness to think that God's love wavers like ours. Jesus teaches us that he will never lose any of those whom the Father gives him. That's in John 6, 37. So there's, there's already a level of commitment there that is not going to waver. But more than that, those who he justifies are forever righteous in his sight. We see that in, in Romans 8, 31-34. We are so justified that no one can bring charges against us. 
So God's love for us cannot waver. Our experience of his love fluctuates, sure. We might feel like his love is more evident in the the joy and the peace of easy times and spiritual highs. And then we might feel like his love has grown cold in the hardship and the pain of suffering or discipline. But in reality, his love for us, his desire to do us good and make us more like Christ and keep us persevering until heaven is constant in all of these things. He's just using different means to reveal it. At one time, revealing his generosity in plenty and abundance. At another time, revealing his love in the way that he corrects the idolatrous tendencies of our hearts and turns our eyes back to Jesus as the only one who can satisfy us. Or at times, in the way he takes away things we've relied on so that we learn to trust and rely on him more. Some of it feels pretty hard. It doesn't necessarily feel like he loves us in those moments. But he is doing this because he loves us. All of which is to say, God's love is not exactly the same as ours. It doesn't come with all the same attachments, if you like. He isn't needy like us. And it's the same with other aspects of his character and his being. There is no one-to-one correspondence between God and us, or God and anything in creation. But there is a correspondence. It's just that we need God to tell us what that is and where the boundaries lie. He has to choose the analogies that best describe him, and he has to set the limitations of them. So he really is love, as we read in 1 John 4, in verses 8 and 16. That is an essential characteristic of God's being. And he has made us in his image with the capacity to love. So we can understand something of what his love is like. But we absolutely must pay attention to the Bible when it tells us how God's love is different to ours. if, If we don't pay attention to scripture, that's when we will go horribly wrong and we'll end up with this pathetic, unreliable God who is made in our own image and who, in all honesty, doesn't inspire much confidence and isn't worthy of much worship. So only God has the right to define himself. That's probably most evident in Exodus 3, verse 14, when God reveals his name to Moses, the name that represents his character. I am who I am, or Yahweh for short. It makes the point, God is self-defining. He is who he is, not who we say he is. And in fact, he's the only self-defining being in all existence because everything else in creation depends on him to exist. So the musician Will I Am, whose name I always find amusing, really needs to extend his name. It ought to be By God's Will I Am because he is not self-existent. Only God is self-existent. 
And we're going to think about the implications of that a bit more for our identity in the application questions. But for now, we need to see that God is who he is and not who we say he is. He must choose the analogies that give us a true and adequate but limited understanding of what he's like. So we always need humility in the way that we speak about him, the way we think about him. We always need to submit ourselves to what his word says. That is why the Bible is our highest authority in all matters of faith. But perhaps I could add, isn't it wonderful that the Bible is such a big book that God has taken 66 books to give us such a rich impression of who he is over 1,500 years and more. It takes all of that to give us an adequate and a rich and a deep and true understanding of what he is like. So we should be thankful for the Bible and we should be thankful for all of it. Every bit is there for a reason. But one part of the story, if you like, is particularly important. And this is where I want to finish. With the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus, the word of God becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. As John says in John 1.14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, God the Son added a full human nature to his divine nature. He didn't cease being God in any way, but he added humanity to himself. And that human nature now belongs as much to the one undivided person of the Son as his eternal divine nature. So when we look at Jesus and his humanity, we are seeing something very real and very wonderful of God. By living, loving, dying, rising among us as a man, he has given us the most perfect set of analogies possible for what God is like. And I'm not sure analogy is even quite an adequate word at this point, because Jesus is also God himself. which is once again, we are pushing beyond the limits of human understanding and human language. But when we look at Jesus, we even see God the Father reflected to us. That's why Jesus says to Philip in John 14 verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God, perfectly accommodated to us in human form. So we know God most truly when we look at Jesus. And in looking at him and in knowing him, that is how we have eternal life. Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, whilst he's praying for his disciples, this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Two things to note in there. One, we can know God, even with all our limitations, because he overcomes those limitations. And two, it is in knowing him that we have eternal life. And that is made possible through Jesus. Now, I I hope, I trust, I think that every one of us in this room has already begun to enjoy this eternal life by believing the gospel. But we have not arrived. Coming to know an uncreated and inexhaustible God is a delightful journey that can never end. We will spend the rest of eternity discovering more and more of the endless riches and beauty of God's character. So put aside twee notions of heaven as floating around on the cloud with a harp. There may be harps, but God is giving us a whole new heaven and earth, a fresh set of analogies, if you like, to illustrate what he is like, unspoiled by sin and corruption. And better still, he himself will be there with us. Now, quite how we will experience the Father in heaven, I don't know. Revelation 21 seems to suggest, as far as I can tell, that it might be the Father who is the one who wipes away our tears. I'm not quite sure how, what that will look like or feel like. What we can say with Certainty is that we will see Jesus face to face. Now we know him in part by trusting his word, but then we will know him by sight and in ever deeper intimacy. So heaven could not possibly be boring. There will always be more of God's beauty and goodness to discover. So God is at one of the same time, unfathomable. And yet he is making himself wonderfully known to us. So let's pray, and then there'll be some Q&A, and then some time round our tables to work through some application questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you would freely, generously, needlessly choose to make us and make a creation in which we could know and enjoy you. And we thank you that you have richly filled it with analogies that show us what you're like. And we thank you that you've gone one step further. You have done the most mind-blowing thing, sending your son to step into creation, more than an analogy, though not less, God himself come in a way that we can most readily understand. We praise you for Jesus, we praise you for the incarnation, and we praise you that we are going to spend the rest of eternity getting to know you more. And we trust that that will never disappoint. We pray for help in the moments in the present life where 
we do feel like you are distant or absent, or we don't feel like you love us, please, Father, help us not to project ourselves onto you in those moments. Please help us always to come back to the truth of your word with humility. Would you be enabling us to understand it more and more by your Spirit? And would you give us growing confidence and delight in all that you've revealed to us there? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.